These are some of my favorite services that we do because I love hearing from our members and friends, and so I'm not going to talk much longer. Our speakers uh, this morning will be uh, Steve Caldwell. I should mention that we're related by marriage. And, um, and uh, Barbara Dager, who's been a very uh, active and engaged um, friend of the church that we're hoping will be a member uh, soon. But I know you're going to enjoy hearing from them. And then, of course, Eric first, our board president, will we'll round it out. So I'm going to stop talking now and let you hear from them. Steve? Good morning. My name is Steve Caldwell. And before I start, I want to make a brief announcement about volunteering for religious education classrooms down the hall. Uh, in the classrooms, they have snack time. To the best of my understanding, there's no snack in this room. That's yet another reason for teaching at All Souls. But we're going to move on to today's topic, uh, the fifth source for our Unitarian Universalist tradition, that is humanist teachings, which counsel us to heed the guidance of reason and the results of science and warn us against the idolatries of mind and spirit. Several years ago, Susan was teaching uh, the new Unitarian Universalist adult religious education class, and she shared a story in that curriculum by the late Reverend Forrest Church. The story is titled The Cathedral of the World. Uh, the story uses the different colors, windows, and refraction and stained glass windows that are scattered throughout a cathedral as a metaphor for the diversity of religious viewpoints in our world. In this metaphor, each stained glass window talks to us about the diversity of people in the world who imperfectly glimpse what might be an ultimate reality beyond the stained glass windows. However, Forrest Church's story brought to mind a different stained glass metaphor from Isaac Asimov. Asimov used stained glass and plate glass to talk about complex poetic writing and simple and direct writing. A few days after Susan's class, a participant on the Unitarian Universalist Theology email discussion list made a comment about truth, knowledge, and religious meaning in Unitarian Universalist theology. This person said, quote, you're making a distinction I did not consider regarding demonstrating that a concept is true removes its meaning. I think that is mainly true. We no longer get a lot of meaning out of medical cures like we did when we thought that spirits and shaman were responsible for that. Getting inoculations is no longer very meaningful. They remain meaningful in the pragmatic aspect of accomplishment and predictability, but lose meaning and more meaningful senses of personal meaning, end quote. And uh, I'm going to talk about that. I don't agree with that, but I'm going to talk about that later on. Uh, in uh, Isaac Asimov's memoir, he mentioned that some writing resembles a stained glass mosaic. A stained glass window is beautiful in itself, and it lets light through the many colored fragments, but one cannot see too clearly through a stained glass window. To continue with this comparison, there is poetic writing that is beautiful in itself and has great emotional impact. But this sort of writing may prevent the writer and reader from communicating effectively. In comparison, plate glass has no beauty of its own. Ideally, you should not even notice that plate glass is there, as you see the woods behind us. Uh, transparent plate glass allows you to see what's happening in the world around you. Asimov suggests that his plain and direct writing style was analogous to plate glass. Ideas flow from writer to reader with few to no barriers in comprehension. Stained glass mosaics have been known since ancient times. Creating clear plate glass that doesn't alter one's view of the world is much harder to do. Even though it's less beautiful and less poetic, plate glass takes much more skill to make. To take Asimov's stained glass and plate glass metaphor further and apply it to theological viewpoints, perhaps the shaman and spirit view of illness mentioned earlier is a stained glass way of looking at the world. For some, there may be more meaning and poetry in this way of looking at the world. However, the humanist life stance in our fifth source gives us immunizations in the germ theory of disease. It is a plate glass way of looking at the world. And while we've lost some poetry and meaning, 
we've made up with that with lives saved and suffering averted. This seems like a fair trade-off. And I, I want to take this metaphor a bit further. Let's say we discovered that our cathedral of the world is really a vehicle zipping down a highway on a freeway with lots of other traffic on it. Maybe the cathedral of the world is really the Winnebago of the world. This is just another way of saying that we live in an increasingly complex world. We're all in this world together, and change is happening quickly. Would we want the poetic and beautiful stained glass mosaic for our windshield? Or would we want a windshield that gives us the best possible view of our rapidly changing world? A windshield allows us to understand the world with greater clarity. During the early years of the AIDS epidemic, some tried the more traditional stained glass framework for understanding HIV and AIDS. Uh, some of these folks suggested that AIDS was God's curse. However, those who were less poetic and less meaningful in their understanding suggested that a virus was responsible for the disease. This less poetic understanding showed us there were practical things that we could do to reduce risk, pain, and suffering. We could test for infection. We had drugs to treat HIV infection. Drugs to prevent HIV infection, like Truveda. They're safe for sex education to prevent infection. And basic research into the disease, maybe with the goal of finding a cure. And I'm okay with giving up some poetry and meaning in the world if it means saving lives and making our lives more whole. Thank you. And now welcome Barbara. Good morning. Last week, um, Amanda Lawrence focused on the wow factor of the fifth source. And today I want to focus on something that I call the I don't know factor. Um, both of my parents valued science, and they were also devout Christians. Charles Darwin had made some wonderful observations. Why would you expect otherwise? He was created by God. Science wasn't demonized, and I'm grateful for that. It was compartmentalized, appropriate in reference to academics, totally useless in matters of faith. In that arena, the Bible held all the answers. And ultimately, I thought I had all the answers. In fact, I had so many answers that in my early 20s, when I went into my first evaluation session with my supervisor, expecting to be put in charge of this impressive project, he handed me um, a professional growth objective that read something to the effect, when consulting with teachers, parents, and other educational personnel, the employee, meaning me, will occasionally use the phrase, I don't know. <laughs> That's right. My first goal was to overcome my habit of always having the answer. Now, for the record, I knew there were lots of things I didn't know, but if it involved certain areas of my expertise or matters of faith or even politics, well, I knew. The universe, of course, provided a myriad of opportunities for me to learn otherwise. But I also started to adopt a more open, questioning attitude. I started recognizing my own biases. I started finding joy in not knowing. See, the part of the fifth source which attracted my attention was that last part, that humanist teachings and reasoning and the results of science uh, will warn us against idolatries of mind and spirit. 
The fifth source is the only source that contains that, that phrase. Perhaps it's this source, with its invitation to look at things more objectively, that it has the greatest potential for freeing us from our idols. And I think we all have our own idols. Some of us use our direct experience, while others quote famous authors or scriptures. And all of these sources are valid, but the fifth source reminds us to step back and to ask the question, is my being right becoming an idol? And surely there are times when an immediate and precise answer is needed. But at other times, if finding common ground is the goal, I know sometimes I need to open up to other possibilities. And thinking that way affected my faith. When the Bible didn't hold all my answers, I started meditating. Meditation drew me to Catholicism. But during a face-to-face -face confession with the priest one day, he handed me a book by Thich Nhat Hanh, a Buddhist. Okay. So I learned I didn't have to abandon all aspects of my early faith in order to add to it, to revise it. There didn't always have to be dichotomies. They could be diversities. And yes, I do think there are times when religion and science can work together. I, for one, am excited that Pope Francis, who is the leader of over a billion people, has decided to have us all look at the effects of climate change and will use the results of science to make his point. I'll close with a story. A couple of months ago, my nine-year-old grandson, Ian, got into a fight on the bus because another child told him that if he didn't believe heaven was up in the sky, he was going to hell. The problem is, Ian had recently been on an airplane. And he told me, I looked everywhere for heaven, and it is not up there in the sky. Grandma, he finally concluded, Kids that believe heaven is up there in the sky just don't ride in airplanes. <laughs> he had his answer for now. We all know Ian's search has only just begun. May he always feel free to reach for a diversity of sources. May he find freedom in the quest for truth that doesn't cling to any one idol. And may he occasionally use the phrase, I don't know. Thank you. Is this on? Yeah. Um, I'm going to start by apologizing because I'm going to offend some people today probably most people, but it's, it's not really my fault. See, I'm a victim of white privilege. So I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. This is on, right? Okay. All right. I, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, um, and you, you may have heard Madison was in the news a few weeks ago. There was a young black 
man who was shot by the police. And when I heard that, my first thought was, Madison has African-Americans? When did that happen? Because my high school, my high school basically looked like all of you, except we were a bit younger. But we, you know, we we had, I think in my class we had had two African-Americans. We had one, one guy was a friend of mine. He ran with the nerds, right? We had played chess with him. We had another guy, he was a jock. But basically, if you talked to them, if you hung out with them, unless you saw their skin color, you wouldn't know the difference. They act, sounded and acted just like us. And we had, you know, we had European history because we all came from Europe originally. We had, we studied the Protestant Reformation because, well, we were all Lutherans or Methodists. There were a few Catholics. Um, and we studied American history. We learned about the Civil War. We learned about the Civil War as history. We didn't learn about the Civil War as our heritage. We, um, I never heard the word Yankee when I was, or not, not really heard the word Yankee, at least not in a derogatory sense when I was in Madison, unless, of course, you were talking about baseball. Then we, we talked about Yankees in a derogatory sense all the time. Um, but the Civil War, just it wasn't a big thing. Right? It was, happened 150 years ago, right? It's time to move on. Stop idolizing the, the Civil War. I have no, white northern privilege. Um, summer nights in the summer during high school, my friends and I would get in a car, we'd go cruising around, and we'd go to um, we'd go to the local swimming pools, and we'd go skinny dipping. We'd sne- we'd jump the fence, we'd go skinny dipping, and I didn't really worry about the police. Okay, we worried a little bit about the police, but the truth was, if the police had caught us, what were they going to do? Probably call our parents, right? In fact, I, there was a time I wasn't I wasn't around for this time. I wasn't with with my friends at this this particular occasion, which was rare, but. My friend Ron and his friends actually got stopped. So my, my friend Ron had, he used to drive this big old LTD, used to be a former police car. Um, and so they, they were actually stopped outside of a pool. And they were about to go in. They were about to hop the fence. They were about to go swimming. And this police car pulls up behind them, flashing lights. The policeman comes up and he says, he says to Ron, um, what are you guys doing? And Ron says, oh, we're just screwing around, officer. And, and the policeman says, um, well, you know, we've had some reports of some kids swimming o- over here. You, you aren't going to do that, are you? And he said, no, 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 no. And the officer said, uh, well, can I look in your trunk? And just then it hit Ron that he had a wet bathing suit in the trunk of his car. <laughs> and, and Ron said, well, okay, but it's going to look kind of funny, sir. He said, oh, go ahead. It's okay, just open it. So Ron went back, he opened the trunk, and spread across the back of that big LTD was a big old American flag. And the police officer looked at it, and he just started laughing, and he said, you guys go home. So we didn't really worry about police. My parents never taught us rules, like African-American parents have to teach their kids. They never taught us, for example, 
if we go into a store, make, make sure that you leave your, your bag with the cashier because you don't want to be accused of shoplifting. They never taught us, if you go into the store, make sure you get a receipt, make sure you get your things in a bag. They never taught us, um, they never taught us not to take pleasure walks in the neighborhood at night. They never taught us not to carry around dark object, dark metallic objects that looked like they could be a weapon. They never had to teach us those things. They never felt like they had to protect us from the police. And when I came home from school, I never worried about there being food in the refrigerator. There was always food in the refrigerator. I never worried about my mom not being home. My mom was always home after school. She was always, always there for us. I'd never even heard of payday lending until a couple of years ago when it came up in, in Interfaith. And I knew, you know, when, when I was growing up, I knew that I would go to college. That was just a given. And I knew that when I graduated from college, if I wanted to, I could go on and get a higher degree. There was, there was no question about that. I had white affluence privilege. I was listening to Rush Limbaugh um, a couple weeks ago, and Rush Limbaugh was saying that he thought starvation was a good thing because it motivated people to get up off of their butts and go get a job. And I thought, man, that guy's an even bigger victim of white privilege than I am. I mean, there's just no coming back from that. It's about six months ago, Sam and I were listening to this comedian on, on the radio, and the comedian said that he hated calling cable companies. And the reason he hated calling cable companies is because he'd know, he knew that he would call up, he would say, you know, there's a problem with my cable TV, I can't get, can't get sex in the city, I really need to watch, want to watch this TV show. And he knew that he would get somebody in India. And he knew that person in India was going to be very nice, they'd say, yes sir, let me help you with this, and they'd get the problem taken care of. But that all the time they would be thinking, you know, I've got 12 brothers and sisters to take care of. I'm working three jobs. Half my family has malaria. The other half has tuberculosis. And this guy's calling about a cable problem. Okay. So, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you watch Sex in the City? Dude, that is so gay. I never had to worry about somebody making derogatory remarks because of my sexual identity. Nobody ever told me, dude, you want to see Man Max? That is so hetero. And if they did, they didn't say it in a derogatory way. Oh. Almost ended early there. Um, so I had a, I had a friend. I have, have a, actually have a friend, uh, Jeff. I've known him since seventh grade. And um, so Jeff is, Jeff's a really nice guy. Jeff is one of the smartest people I know. And he's, he's really nice. He was overweight in high school. He's since lost that weight. Um, but in, high, in uh, college, we found out that Jeff is gay. Jeff could never tell us that he was gay could never tell his closest friends something so deep and personal for him. I never felt like I had to hide who I was. I have another friend, Jose. So Jose's from Venezuela. I, I met him. He, we were in the same lab in graduate school. Um, Jose, uh, he's 
really like Jose. He's, he's really funny. He's got a really great sense of humor. We're born two days apart. And um, so he's two days younger than me. So on, our birth, on my birthday, he'll send me an email, and he'll say, happy birthday, old man. And so two days later, I'll send him an email and say, happy birthday, young man. But he's, you know, whenever you see him, he gives you presents. He's a really, really nice guy. Um, and after he'd been in the lab about a year, a friend of his from Venezuela, Ramon, came to San Diego. And Ramon works with, with old manuscripts. He restores old manuscripts. And he came to San Diego to learn some techniques on restoring these old manuscripts. And he stayed for about six months. Then he went back to Venezuela. And we liked Ramon. Ramon was a nice guy. He's quieter than Jose, but he, he's still a really nice guy. Then he came back about a year later. And pretty soon we realized that actually Jose and Ramon are a couple. And they had never broadcast this or said anything. Um, but, you know, by the time we realized there was a, they were a couple, we'd already gotten to know them. We already liked them. And, I mean, what are you going to do at that point, right? You already like them. So I never felt like I had to be ashamed of who I was in love with. I never felt like I had to hide that. Um, so, and, and I can't... I can't even imagine what it would be like if my brain told me I was one gender and my body told me I was a different gender. I can't imagine what that would be like. What simple things like just going to the bathroom, how, how that would be so complicated. And on the other hand, when we put in um, unisex bathrooms at All Souls, I never even thought that, or realized that some of our members would have, it would make them feel very uncomfortable. I never really saw that side of it either. And I don't have a solution to, that will make everybody happy for that. I did have a solution that would make everybody happy. I suggested that we label one-pointers and one-setters, but nobody liked that idea. So I guess I don't have a solution that will make, make everybody happy. But what, what I can tell you is that, that for me, All Souls is a safe place where I can get to know people as individuals and not labels that other people put on them. And I can get to know them, and I can get to know what they're about, and I can get to try and understand their, their point of view. Even Southerners. <laughs> and so, so for that, I thank you. Um, and and hope hope and if you have thanks. <laughs>